At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Good morning, church. How you feeling? Woo! Palm Sunday, right? I saw my favorite Christian meme this week. Palm Sunday is when Jesus slapped the face of Satan, right? Said, take that, you know, because this is the answer. This is the truth of the world. And man, it is good to be a follower of Jesus. Do you believe that? All right. You guys know I like to jump in. You guys are the best service. The 11 o'clock, they like to sleep in. Yes, I love to cause division between the 9.30 and 11. In the name and authority of Jesus Christ, right? I love you guys. I'm so happy to be here and to be your pastor. I've had just a great, great last month, month and a half being with you. And just like every week, I wanna pose a question. I wanna challenge you with a question. If you were able to sit down and have a meal with Jesus, would you enjoy being with him? Mm. Think about that. Some of us, we might be like, yes, I love it. I would love to spend a lunch or dinner sharing a meal with Jesus. But I, I believe that some of us, man, that would be scary where we are today. Maybe we'd be like, I, I'm not ready to have a meal with Jesus. I'm, I'm still battling things in my life. I'd be ashamed or guilty to look in the eyes of Christ. So I want to share a story real quick. And this goes all the way back to my sophomore year in Bible college. So freshman year comes around and I'm like in that honeymoon stage. I just gave my life to Christ and I joined the basketball team for the college. I joined the soccer team for the college. So I'm playing sports, I'm active, I'm making Christian friends. I found a Christian who happens to be a girl who became a girl friend. And now I am going into my sophomore year and I won't lie guys, I had a sophomore slump. Going into my sophomore year, it was a challenge. I remember being in one of my counseling classes. It was like Counseling 101, and I had my professor there, Regina Green, and I remember uh, one day after class, I just said, hey, can we talk? And I went up to her, rest in peace, Regina. She's with the Lord now. And I said, can we talk about some? I I'm struggling with some stuff. She said, of course. And I said, I am just overwhelmed. I am, I am just burnt out. I'm stressed. I have no free time. 
And, and like a good counselor, she was listening and giving me some good nonverbals. And, and we were talking. It had to be 15, 20 minutes. And I was just word vomiting, right? Like, oh, this is all my life. And, and, and then she said, okay, I want you to do something for me. She gave me a marker. And she said, I want you to, to write on the board, on the whiteboard, every single thing that makes up your life. Everything. Just write all the busyness that you have. So I wrote on there uh, sports, right? I'm, I'm playing soccer and I got two to three hours of practices a, a day. And I have, you know, when we're leaving to go to a, play a team out of town, I mean, it could be up to 10 hours away. And so my weekend's gone. And, and then I have, you know, to work a little to pay for, you know, my uh, Nokia cell phone, flip phone, and uh, pay for car insurance and gas. And so I'm, I'm doing some work. I'm working for the YMCA and I'm doing kind of a big brother program. And so I write that down and then I'm taking a full set of classes. I got 18 credits and I'm taking Greek, which is extremely challenging. So I got my 18 credits. Oh yeah. And then I have a girlfriend. And so that takes a ton of time and so, and resources. And so I write that down and I'm just venting, oh, this is all going on. I have no time for my friends, blah, blah, blah. And then, and and then she's looking at me and then she's looking at the board and she just keeps looking at me and, and I look at her and I'm like, I'm just, I'm just burnt out, you know? And then she looks at the board and looks at me again and she said, where's God on your list? And here I am <laughs> in Bible college studying to be a pastor and I didn't even mention one thing about my relationship with God. Nothing. She drew a circle around everything and wrote God at the top of the circle. It, it blew my mind that here I am wanting to be here and serve the church and serve my Lord and I'd become so consumed with, with the busyness of life that I didn't even have a relationship, a true thriving relationship with Christ. I could quote every book of the Bible, you know, this verse and that verse, and, and I, could, I could preach sermons, and I could counsel, but yet I wasn't even thinking about God as a priority of my life. And you know, it's unfortunate to share that, but it's a truth that, that I learned from. Where's God in our lives? Where is he? Does he even make the cut? As that experience shook me to the soul, it made me realize that I'd become prideful in my relationship with Christ. I had thought my, my academic uh, prowess, my, my relationships, my, my uh, sports uh, achievements, my relationship with my girlfriend, I, all this stuff, I thought, this is good enough. I came from a season where I was living on cloud nine and everything seemed to be great. And now I got to a place where 
I had started achieving a lot without God. And so in some way, and I think I could speak for us this morning, I developed a kind of a pride that lives in a state of not needing Jesus. I love Jesus, but unknowingly, I lived as if I didn't need him. Does that make sense? I, I liked him. I loved him. I loved the ways that he was, he was spreading the gospel to universities and communities and feeding the hungry, but I was living myself as if I really didn't need him. I wasn't fully enjoying Jesus in my life. So when we talk today and we dig into the word today, I want us to find some barriers that keep you and me from enjoying Christ. I want to find some barriers that that we have this joy, but not to the fullest. There's just, there's just something else missing. And so we've been talking over the last uh, couple weeks about soul food, right? Sharing meals with Jesus and looking at all these different meals. Some of them were planned. Last week it wasn't planned. And, and we're, we're experiencing how Jesus used the method of meals to evangelize people to disciple people. He used food. Food's good. It, it sets the, no pun, sets the table for him to invest in people's lives. I, I love last week's message because, you know, it's Christ enough, right? They kept having to go back to the source. Jesus was the source and he kept giving and giving and giving and there was some left over. And so through Luke's gospel, we keep finding moments where Jesus had these profound conversations and miracles that exposed the world to the gospel. And so today, we get to dig into another story. We're going to be in Luke 14. And I love this story because here we have another meal with Jesus and the religious leaders. So Luke 14, verse 1, we're going to be digging into this. And, and like I said, very intriguing, this story, because these religious leaders, they're just gluttons for punishment. They want Jesus to come back. Hey, share another meal with us. So let's go ahead and let's read this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Okay, so given the last meal that Jesus had with these religious leaders, remember that woman who was known for those things in the community? 
And she went there and, and, she, and she wept and her tears made his feet uh, wet and she used her, her hair to dry his feet and she anointed him. She did all these amazing things and they were disgusted at this, at this sinner that was there. And I'm sure that whether these were those same religious leaders or different ones, I'm sure they had heard of it. And yet here we have another experience where religious leaders have invited Jesus to share a meal with them. And we all know when you share a meal, it was a, a sign of prestige. Who was at your meal? Where were you dining? And usually, it's so weird to me, usually people would stand around and watch people eat. So these religious leaders, they could have had hundreds of people observing them as they ate. And so these religious leaders, they again invite Jesus to their home, and we have a couple clues, but as you read the text, it tells us some of their motive. It shows us that there was, in fact, pride happening at this table. Specifically, there were, there were three things that make up pride, right? Like pride, it's, it's, a, it's a broad statement, but what are some things that are pride? What are some things that make up pride? And so they had three things. Disbelief, they just didn't believe him. They had uh, uh, legalism and they had hypocrisy. These were three signs of their pride that we see demonstrated at this meal. I wanna talk about each one of those. Not the, the smoothest, the most kind message to talk through, but you know, pride, it's like, well, what does that even look like, right? And the first thing I wanna talk about that we see in verse one is their disbelief. If you look, uh, he's hanging out with the rulers of the Pharisees on the Sabbath. We don't know exactly why they invited him, but we do see some of their intentions. I'm not saying this is exactly their intentions, but it does say, if you read in verse one of Luke 14, they were watching him carefully. So they invited him, and they are, they are watching him. They are observing him. That's interesting to me, because when you look at the verb of that text, it implies that they were lying in wait and ready to pounce. The reality is they were looking for something in Christ that would have incriminated him. They were looking for a slip up. Maybe you've been in a conversation with someone and, and you're talking with them and you know they ain't listening. They're already calculating their response. Do we have any people like that that know people like that? Are you people like that? <laughs> I mean, I could just throw out gas prices, politics, money, you know, just let me throw out every hot topic, Ukraine, Russia, and, and someone's calculating in their mind a response to that, right? And I could say something in opposition, and you guys are already calculating how you will debunk my statement, right? And so that's what's happening here. 
They've invited Jesus and they're watching carefully because they want to catch him. They want him to slip up. And we see actually in, in the Old Testament in Psalm that, that there's, some, there's a very similar statement that we read in that text. It says this in Psalm 37, 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. So the Pharisees, they were in a place where they were watching and they wanted to harm him. They wanted him to, to mess up some interpretation of the law and they wanted to use it against him to, to incriminate him. And, and I think that's so interesting because they've tried and they've tried and they've tried, but what blows my mind most is not their persistence to catch him in a mess up. What blows my mind most is that they witnessed his miracles. They have seen him heal and save and do these miraculous things and they still did not believe. That's what, what jars my mind. They just lacked belief, even with miracles. How many of us today live in that same pride that we've, we've seen God work, we've seen God move in our lives, we've heard the good news, we've even in some way seen miracles, and yet we still struggle to believe. I do this thing with my kids where um, they'll be just standing like this and doing a, what we call a trust fall. You guys know what a trust fall is? And it's funny, they love doing it. But usually, when I say, hey, let's do a trust fall, the first couple times they'll be doing this, right? And then they'll do this, and then they'll fall back, and they'll do this thing where they'll, one foot, right? And then eventually, once they realize I'm there, then they'll start falling back. And I'll do this thing where I will actually go to my knees and wait for them to almost hit the ground before catching them. It was a great idea until Hannah hit her back head on the ground, you know, whiplash. I'm like, oh, oops, don't trust me. Okay. And so I'll catch them and I'll lean back and they'll fall and they love it. It's my turn, my turn, my turn, right? And then I have to do it like 10,000 times. But I think about that concept and it's like with God, we have that initial time, right? Like, okay, can, can you show up in this situation? And, and sometimes we fall, but then something happens where we catch ourselves. And it's like we need practice. Oh, yeah, like remember. Remember when he showed up. Like, someone told me this years ago, a pastor, Winston, write in a book all the times where God showed up. And do not forget. When things start going hard, look at the ways he showed up in your life. Oh yeah, he showed up in this situation. Oh, he definitely showed up there. I've already had a couple situations that he showed up with me moving up here and I'm just like praising God for it. But I would love to say that every time I'm like, oh yeah, I believe, I don't have any doubt. But us doubting the power of God, it, it is a form of pride. Because we're not believing in who he is, the power that he possesses. What areas of your life does the pride of disbelief 
live. Woo! Man, sometimes I need to gear myself back. The pride of, of, of finances. Woo! Don't talk about my money. The pride of achievement. Look at the title that I have. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've achieved. The title of your kingdom, your homes, your lands, your work ethic. I've had that issue before. I have a great work ethic. I'm driven. I only have that because God gave it to me. I only have the energy and the breath and the vision for the day because God allows uh, that, that piddly Greek to wake up. <laughs> what is it in our life, what areas of our life do we have the pride of disbelief? Second thing that they struggled with, with their pride, is legalism. The story turns its attention to a man who had dropsy. Dropsy was an abnormal accumulation of liquid in her cells, and it caused swelling. And the swelling in limbs and belly, it indicates or organ failure. So there's a good chance that this person was terminally ill. They were dying. And his sickness would have been very obvious to those around that table. And since meals were a sign of, uh, of status, it's hard to believe that that man with dropsy was actually invited to the meal. Because, man, he's got this illness. It's probably because of something that he did or his ancestor that caused him to have this illness. And so I think about this. Here's this man. He's at the table. And now Jesus has an opportunity to teach a lesson. I love Jesus. He shares questions. And he, he in a place where they're trying to trap him, he was hoping to even give them another opportunity to accept him. And so before healing the man, he asked this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I mean, he knew that answer. To them, the regulations that they had were, hey, it is not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. That's nowhere in the word of God. That was something that, that they actually uh, came up with. That's man-made religion. And so in this moment, he knows they're trying to catch him in a slip-up. And so he poses another question to them. He sees an ill person, and he says, is it, lost, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The man, he probably wouldn't have died that day. He probably would have been okay if Jesus had waited to heal him the next day. But again, that wasn't what Jesus was going to do in that situation. He wanted to have a conversation with them, and he wanted to challenge how they interpreted the law. And so in their eyes, you know, hey, he's going to violate or he already has violated. They've seen it a couple times on the Sabbath by healing uh, someone and it infuriated them. And so with this question, it actually stumps them. <laughs> they choose, hey, we're just not going to respond. 
Have you ever asked someone a question and you kind of had that drop the mic moment and they just had no response? That's what happens here because they know if they say, yes, it is good to heal on the Sabbath, then that's giving Jesus credibility. But if they say no, the people are going to see them and, and say they're weak in their, in their understanding of the scripture and, and, they're, and they're heartless and, and they don't care for humanity. And so in this situation, with a person in need, they're battling with legalism. They care less about the person and more about their man-made law. In definition, legalism is a way of law-keeping to gain acceptance with God. It's like, hey, if I do these things, then I'm actually going to earn acceptance with God. I can do actions to earn acceptance. But you want to know the opposite of legalism? Grace. The unmerited grace that is offered through Jesus. And so in this, in this text, we see a collision of grace and legalistic religion. We see a collision of compassion and law. And these Pharisees hadn't yet recognized their need for grace. Because Jesus wanted them to know him. He, he wasn't just like, hey, I, I don't want you guys to have any knowledge of me or acceptance of me. He wanted them to know him. But they had not yet accepted that. They were more proud about their position or wealth, prestige, their seat at the table. Legalism says God will love us if we change. The gospel says God will change us because he loves us. It's a powerful statement of, of just almost like these little meticulous differences. I would love to say I haven't been on the first part of that. But we all have to be careful and look in the mirror and say, hey, is that some of me? Not, hey, I'm gonna get my life right and then go to God, or then I'll be accepted. No, I'm gonna go to God and he will make my life right. It's not behavior modification. It's going to him and allowing him to change us, to, to renovate our lives, to transform our lives, to go with a sledgehammer and start busting down some walls in our hearts. He's going to change us. And more than just being a way of keeping the law to please God, legalism can be a spirit that flows from, from failure to be humbled, to be broken, to be amazed and satisfied by the grace of God in Christ. What, what blows my mind, and this is going to be hard for some people in this room, and this will be good for people in this room, 
Usually the most legalistic people are the ones who've been raised in church. They're not the ones who gave their life to Christ in their 20s or 30s. They're usually the ones who've been built up from a young age and raised up and then eventually gave their life to God and then they tend to adopt a spirit of legalism because what have, what have they experienced of the world? It's like the parable of the person who's been forgiven a small debt and a great debt. They've only had a small debt. Look at all that, that they've seen in other people. I've never done that. I've noticed in my experience within churches that the ones who battle legalism are the ones who are churched. Am I wrong? Am I about to be stoned? <laughs> you know, I've ministered to students, to adults. It's usually the ones who have been broken, who've been devastated, been divorced, been cheated on, who've went bankrupt, who've been abused, who've struggled with addiction, ones who battle mental health, the ones who don't have a good support system, the ones who are marginalized, those are usually the ones who have awe, who have joy, who appreciate what God has done. It doesn't mean that those who are raised in the church can experience those. That's not what I'm saying. It just means sometimes it's a little different because we haven't battled some of the, the brokenness that, that people who haven't been under that umbrella of Christ have. And that's what these Pharisees are. They've probably not went through that much. They've had their silver spoon. Things have been pretty good. And, and if we're not careful, we could have these little itty bitty subtle legalisms in our soul. Well, well, look at that. He, he didn't hold his Bible the right way. Or, or look at that. He didn't quote enough scripture today. Or, or hey, like, did you see what that person was wearing? Or hey, that volume was just a little too high. Or hey, those lights, it's too dark in here. Or it's too bright. I don't want to look at the person next to me. Or man, why, why do they always say these announcements? We can adopt some of those principles and not even know it. These people were battling legalism and they were also battling hypocrisy. <laughs> this is the crazy thing. Following their silence to this question, Jesus shows their hypocrisy with another question. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Jesus essentially is essentially saying, we would all do it. You know, Pharisees, if, if your animal was trapped or if your child was stuck in a pit, you would do it. So why are you pointing the finger? Check out the speck in your own eye. You have these regulations, but you would do the exact same thing if you were in their shoes. So to forbid human rescue would have meant that they treated their animals better than people. 
So Jesus, again, uses this, this word and talks about an animal and talks about someone stuck in a pit. And, and he uses it to reverse it, to challenge them and just continue to tell them, guys, we are more valuable than animals. We are more valuable than, than your ox and your sheep and your goats. God sees you and he values you. Look at this person. Look at them. Do you not think God values them and loves them? This rhetorical question implies that this man sees with dropsy is a child of God, but they are completely indifferent because they only care if it benefits them. And again, we could all be in the same shoes. The pride of hypocrisy could run very deep within our churches, within our homes. We could all struggle with this. But God values the person, not, not just sacrifice. He values people. So I wanna ask you this question. What areas of your life are you living in a state of pride which is keeping you from enjoying Jesus? What is it? Take, a time, take some time to think about it. What is it in your life that you have pride that's keeping you from enjoying Jesus? The second scripture, the second point that I want to talk about is humility allows us to enjoy Jesus. So if pride keeps us from enjoying Jesus, humility allows us to enjoy Jesus. Look what it says in verse 7 through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do you not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, uh, invited both people, will come and say to you, give your place to the person. And then you will begin with shame to be taken to the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is teaching now what not to do and what to do, right? This is like countercultural. Hey, if you want to be honored, humble yourself. If you want to be humbled, try honoring yourself. It sounds like the words of 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at your proper time. And so if we want and we fight for prestige, that, that's not of any value in the kingdom of God. God loves humility. No, not just like, and I think about this, not just staged humility, but true humility. I love how Proverbs 25, six says it. Do not put yourself toward, forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of the nobles. And so I, I think about even the, the Beatitudes, those who are hungry will be filled. Those who are poor 
will be rich. What we're seeing here is there are people who, who don't have the same resources, the same prestige, and, and God sees them, and he loves them just the same. And so we, who some of us, we've been given many, be humble, believe, don't be hypocrites, don't be legalistic, because the kingdom of God is not self-seeking. It's so much different. Jesus is teaching that the way to true exaltation is enjoying Jesus with a spirit of humility. Enjoying Jesus in a way that's so much greater than just puffing our chest and saying, look what I've done. Gotta be careful. We all can fall stray in different ways in, in this area. And so as I think about this topic and how counterintuitive it is to the world we live in, I want us, I mean, just look at, look at our world. It's like everything opposite of this. We look at politics or executives or sports figures or, or even churches in some regard. Everyone seems to be jockeying for position, <laughs> jockeying for, for, to be seen, jockeying for, for getting our name more known. But I want to challenge our church to embrace a culture of humility. Embrace a culture that doesn't look down but builds up, that sees that person with dropsy and says, you are valued, you are seen, you are loved, you are redeemed. Which leads to our big idea. The point of this entire message is this. Humility is essential for anyone to enjoy Jesus. It's not like, hey, this is okay, or this adds a little flavor. No, it is essential for joy. And if I went person to person and said, from one to 10, what are your joy levels? And you said, I'm a two, I'm a three, I'm a four. Maybe this is something that we can reflect on. Why don't I have as much joy in my life? Doesn't mean circumstance will be perfect. I'm not, I'm not offering that because sometimes circumstance makes no sense. But I'm saying that maybe it's because there's a battle of pride and a battle to not accept humility. You know, as we consider this passage, as we consider the word, just a couple chapters later, we get to read about the triumphal entry of Jesus, right? We're on Palm Sunday. And this is probably the most praised Jesus was, one of the main areas in our, in our word where Jesus is elevated by people. And so he rode into the city and he was riding a donkey. You know, I come from the Louisville area. Horses are big down there, okay? People breed horses, they sell horses. To have a horse of value and strength, and that's a big deal. And I always say you can't win the Kentucky Derby on a donkey. 
You gotta have a good horse. You gotta have something to ride. Jesus can win a race on a donkey. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. And I want us to all remember today as we talk about meals and we're just a week away from Easter. I want you to remember the value of your neighbor. I want us to remember that we might be the only vein for someone to know Christ. Usually with pride, there's no invitation. With humility, it's come along with. I would love next week to see these doors filled with people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Or filled with people who have had some church hurt. And maybe they can find healing. Maybe this isn't their landing pad, but maybe it's a place where a couple seeds are thrown. Guys, I pray that we can find joy and fulfillment with the essentials of humility. So as we walk out these doors, keep thinking about that question. Would you enjoy a meal with Jesus? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.